Alright, we continue our study in the Shorter Catechism, the portion dealing with the Ten Commandments. We've finished our look at the two great commandments, the moral law in general, the preface to the Ten Commandments, and the first commandment. And now we pick up the second commandment. If we could say the first commandment deals with the object of our worship, who or what are we to worship, it answers God. He is the only one that we are to have. That's idolatry, plain and simple, is to have another God. Now the second commandment would be a more subtle form of idolatry where a person has the true God, but they don't worship him in the way that he says. So the second commandment strikes especially at the usage of graven images. Now this is a moral law. This is an eternal law. It's not something that would expire as the papists cut it out of the Ten Commandments and say that expired because Jesus rose from the dead and was crucified as if it were some kind of ceremony. Here the Lord appoints to us that we are not to worship with graven images or any likeness, he says, of things in heaven or on earth or under the earth. So these are created objects, in other words. Nothing, no representation of any creature is to be used in the worship of God. You're not to make them, first of all, and then you're not to offer religious gestures. That's the idea of bowing down and serving them. That doesn't mean you can burn incense to them. It just means he's giving you two examples of the types of actions that people use in their worship. Bowing and serving. Those are two actions people do. So no graven images made, and then no religious actions done toward those graven images. And then he appoints the reason. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. So God almost considers the second commandment as all of the commandments. You see that figure of speech there. He says, showing mercy unto them that love me and keep my commandments. It's as if, if you worship God, and the way that he says, it's as if you've kept all the commandments. That's how important God thinks it is. Now, it's not to say that God accepts lawful worship done as he commands and you can commit murder. No, he condemns that elsewhere in scripture. But the point is, God ascribes a great amount of importance. Now, one word I want you to take with you is the word iconoclasm. Iconoclasm, that means you take an icon or a graven image and you klasmos, you break it in pieces. That's the biblical position always and forever. We must break idols in pieces because they take away the glory of God. And because God is jealous for his glory, he won't give it to graven images. He will destroy those who use graven images. He'll curse them and give them blindness. And then he'll cause their children to partake in that blindness because they will follow in the ways of their fathers and they will reap the whirlwind. So it's a multi-generational sin because it violates the created order that the, the creature is now worshiping the creature, the work of the creature. Here's man, here's the image that he makes below him, and here's God above man. By worshiping a graven image or any creature, any representation or icon of a creature, 
man points his worship down toward the work of man rather than up toward God himself. With that said, that preface behind us, now question 50. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving. Joshua chapter 24, verses 23 through 25, Joshua says, Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Now a couple things to note here. Are there other gods? No, not in actual fact. In the plain statement of it, there are no other gods. So when the Bible refers to strange gods, what it's talking about is what people consider as objects of worship, like a graven image. So he says, this is iconoclasm, he says, put away the strange gods. Take away all your graven images. None of those are to be among you. And then notice what the people say in response to that commandment about putting away the graven images is that they will only serve whom? The Lord, right? That's the first commandment. And then the second commandment, and his voice will we obey. That's the second commandment. So the first and the second commandments are they, they are accepting. They're saying, I receive from God, we as a nation receive from God the ordinances of his worship by his voice, that's the scriptures, will only listen to the Bible when we worship God, when we serve God. So that's what they're saying is, we receive the manner of worshiping God. And then Joshua makes a covenant with the people so that it's perpetual in their memory. And then he makes it a statute and an ordinance that they have received the lawful worship of God rather than strange gods which are unlawful. All right, number two. The second commandment requireth the receiving observing in second place observing. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 32 says, Ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you, ye shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now these are analogies for the way of God's worship. It's like a pathway. And there are byways, that's what we call these. One path goes off to the right, One path goes off to the left. Now there's another manner of speaking that the Bible uses about adding or taking away. That's looking at it as a quantity or a measure of things. God has meted out to you in the scriptures a number of commands. Don't add to those commands. Don't take away from those commands. Here, the analogy is that of a pathway. And God's pathway for his worship is, these are the ways that you walk. These are the steps you take in my worship both in your heart and mind and your will and affections, and also with the external actions of your body. These are the way. Walk in this. But then he says, 
Don't even think about going to one side on the left or the other side on the right. Don't go off of the path that I've set for you. And that's very similar to the idea of adding to or subtracting from their ditches on either side. He says don't do either. Deuteronomy 32, 45 and 46. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel. By the way, we'll see this when we start in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is like a series of sermons that Moses delivers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the second generation. First generation died out after they came out of the land of Egypt because they refused to believe the promise and obey the command. So they had 40 days for the spies, so 40 years in the wilderness. Now Moses is preparing this younger generation that was under 20 years old. They're going to go in and inherit. And he delivers sermons to them. He preaches to them. That's why it says these words that he spoke to Israel. That's what he did. He preached them. And this is what he said. And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do. All the words of this law. Now, if you have something that you treasure very highly, like for example in Britain, in London, at the Tower of London, and all around there, they have this massive set of crown jewels. They have watchmen who observe those, who keep them, who are very careful about making sure that everything is fine with those crown jewels. They observe very carefully those things so that they don't get damaged or destroyed. And that's the idea when God says to observe his things is that you watch them very carefully and then he has a purpose for your observation that you would do what he says. Hear the word, carefully look after it, and then do it. That's what he's saying here. Set your hearts to all the words that I've testified among you this day. And you'll notice, if you, once we get through Deuteronomy, you'll see this. The principal words that God gives concern his worship. There are secondary matters concerning our relationship to other humans. But the main point God makes in his word, the principal and chief commandment is always respecting him and the worship that we owe to him. So he says, set your heart, hear the word, observe the word so that you can do the word. And do this from generation to generation. Everything I've said to you, pass it on to your kids. Now you say, but that's the Old Testament. God demanded that people listen to him concerning his worship and now we're free from the law. We can do worship however we please. As long as the elders give us a tradition. As long, or some people say as long as it feels good. As long as it's like a rock concert. And I get a high when I go there. We'll do that. No. Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Now that's very important. That means that Christ's government, that's the word power, his right to govern is universal. It's not just in heaven, not just over the church, it's universal. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to what? Observe. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now the commandments that Jesus gave to the apostles, that's who he's addressing here. He promised that the Holy Spirit would take those words that he spoke to them and bring them to their memory and that they would give those words to the church. And we call that the New Testament. The promise of Christ giving a government and a universal rule to his church so that when we have worship, when we have government, when we have our lives as Christians, we're to observe, to carefully watch after every command that Jesus gave to his disciples so that we can do them. It's the same that God said through Moses. Observe everything I've said. Do what I have said. And that's what Christian discipleship is. Christ is the universal monarch. He's the only king and head of the church. He's the only lawgiver. He's the only one who can give these commands that are authoritative and binding. And remember, even Paul said that we are not lords over your faith. We're not kings in the church. We're slaves of you people of God. That's what ministers are, even apostles. Christ is the only king. Peter said he was a fellow elder, that he wasn't a lord over the flock. He was a servant for Jesus' sake, just as Paul was. Christ is the only king. And therefore, he alone can say, this is how I'm to be worshipped. These are the observed commandments. Baptism, he names as one of them. And then all the other commandments concerning God's worship are referenced here in this passage. So this isn't just the Old Testament where we may only worship God according to his commandments. This is also in the New Testament. All right, page two of your handout there. It should say number three, but it says number two. The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Deuteronomy 12, verses 30 through 32. The Lord, through Moses, says, Take heed to thyself, that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Okay, now this is very important. What he's saying that they're going to do is they're going to say, how can we follow the culture of our day? That's what they're saying. That's the question. Our culture worships their gods in this way. Let us pattern the manner in which God is to be worshipped after them, those nations that used to live here. Verse 31. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto 
nor diminish from it. And this is what I was saying previously about the pathway. And then you have turning to byways, the right hand or to the left. Now, when he says, here's the thing you're supposed to do in worship, whatever I command, that's it. That's important to understand. Worship is whatever God commands. Now, there are other matters that are built into the order of nature, such as thou shalt not commit adultery. He doesn't say thou mayest commit adultery if I command you to. He just says don't do it. You're never to do it. Now, you're never to worship graven images. That's true. Iconoclasm is built into the order of nature because God is a spirit. He's not to be worshipped by the work of men's hands. You never push worship down toward your inferiors. It always goes up toward your superior. So, therefore, graven images are never to be worshipped. But, in terms of the order of nature, you're always not allowed to commit adultery. But in terms of the manner of God's worship, it's always whatever he says. If he says, do this, you do this. If he says, do that, do that. If he changes it over time, then you follow the change. Because all of it, the moral principle behind it is, God is the sovereign, therefore he determines how he's supposed to be worshipped. If men determine how you're to worship God, men are therefore sovereign. So if you add to his manner of worship, you are professing to be God. Okay? That's, that's taking God off of his throne. You're saying he's no longer sovereign. Christ is no more king. Therefore, I can determine how he's supposed to be worshipped. I'm the king. Or the church is my king. Or the elders are my king. Or the pope is my king. Or the councils are my king. Whoever your king is tells you how God's supposed to be worshipped. So that's the first thing. If you diminish from what God says, if you take away, then you are a blasphemer. Because you're not treating God's name with reverence. God's name entails his authority and his legislative power to say how he's supposed to be worshipped. So if you diminish God's worship, you're a blasphemer. If you add to his worship, you're an atheist. So you can't do either. That's why he's saying it. These are principles of nature. Only God is sufficient in his wisdom, in his justice, in his holiness to say... What's the right way to worship me? Creatures can't do that. No creature. The church, the pope, me, you, some rock band leader, nobody has the right to say this is the manner of God's worship except God himself. And so therefore, adding to his worship is legislating and becoming a god. Diminishing from his worship is to become a blasphemer and to take his name in vain and to treat him with disrespect as if you don't have to listen to him. Because even though he said it, I don't have to listen to you, God. So that's why the two are added. Don't add, don't diminish. Now I found this quotation helpful. Zacharias Ursinus, his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Some people believe that the Heidelberg Catechism gives more room for idolatry than our Westminster standards. No, it doesn't. If you properly understand the Heidelberg Catechism, it cuts off all idolatry. Here's his comments. He was one of the authors, by the way, of the Heidelberg Catechism. He says, The other species of idolatry is more subtle and refined. The first species is where you reject the true God and you accept a different God. So now he's saying 
that's blatant idolatry. This is more subtle. As when the true God is supposed to be worshipped, while the kind of worship which is paid unto him is false. Which is the case when anyone imagines that he is worshipping and honoring God by the performance of any work not prescribed by the divine law. Now, that word prescribed that he uses there means written beforehand. God has to write it down in his word, and that then becomes our prescription, an authoritative guidance given beforehand so that you know how you're supposed to worship. So when someone imagines that God is honored or that God is worshipped, when they do things he hasn't said, that, he says, is idolatry. God didn't tell you to do it, and yet you're doing it. God didn't prescribe it in the scriptures. He goes on. This species of idolatry is more properly condemned in the second commandment and is termed superstition because it adds to the commandments of God the inventions of men. Okay, here you have it. God made commands concerning his worship. The superstitious adds on top, super, on top of, or above and beyond, the statutes. That's superstition. God made the statutes. The superstitious add on top of the statutes. They tell us, we invented these things, and you must worship in this manner. In fact, the Pope is so anti-Christian and blasphemous, he says if you don't observe Christmas, you're in peril of damnation. You cannot be saved unless you observe the holy days that he names as necessary to salvation. Well, where's the prescription to observe Christmas in the scriptures? Where is the prescription to observe Easter in the scriptures? Where is the example of the apostles observing Christmas in the scriptures? Where is the example of the apostle observing Easter in the scriptures? I'm going to tell you right now, without fear of contradiction, there are no prescriptions, there are no examples, there is no passage of scripture where you can say, other than the historic descriptions of the events of the resurrection and the incarnation, there is no pattern for how you're to observe those days. And yet... What does he say? You can't be saved unless you do what I say. You can't be saved unless you listen to me, the idolater in chief, the superstitious man who says, you'll go to hell if you don't do the inventions of men. Ursinus goes on. Those are called superstitious who corrupt the worship of God by their own inventions. This will worship or superstition is condemned in every part of the word of God. In fact, what's interesting, the New Testament condemns idolatry, doesn't it? Again and again and again. People who are idolaters, the scripture tell us, tells us, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven and be an idolater. But this word will worship is not found in the Old Testament. This word will worship is found in the epistle to the Colossians chapter 2 where Paul describes man's supposed wisdom in denying himself and bowing before angels and offering worship to creatures and man denying the desires of his flesh in terms of foods and perhaps in terms of marriage. He says, I'm not going to be married. I'm going to deny myself that good. I'm not going to eat meats. This is all what uh, grew into from the Colossian heresy into the monastic heresy. 
which dominated the church for several hundred years and in some places still dominates. It's will worship. It's where God is worshipped, not according to God's will. Whose will do you suppose is substituted for God's will in will worship? Man's will. And that's your own personal or the church. Because the traditions of the elders, Jesus said in Matthew 15 and, and Mark 7, the tradition of the elders was handed down and people worshipped God after the doctrines and commandments of men. And when people do that, he says it's like drawing near to your to God with your lips while your heart is far from him. Well, how is that? Because you say I'm worshipping God, but before you start worshipping God, shouldn't you be concerned about how he's prescribed his worship to take place? Yes, of course you should. That's the point. Superstition says, I don't have to concern myself with God's will. I just have to listen to men. I just have to listen to myself. Or I have to listen to this group, or that group, or these fathers, or that pope, or whatever. That's will worship. That's superstition. And he says, it's not just condemned in the Old Testament. Every part of the word of God condemns that. And so therefore, when we think of worship... The second commandment doesn't just say don't worship with graven images. That's a, that's a figure of speech by which one work of man is put for all works of man. The graven image is the work of your hands. But also God condemns the work of your own mind where you say, I should worship God after this manner. Wouldn't this be the right manner? Wouldn't God receive honor in this? Well, the question is, What did he say would honor him? So God in the second commandment doesn't just prohibit us from worshiping by graven images. He certainly does that. But he also requires that we receive from him, that we carefully observe and practice, and that we keep it pure, that is, without mixture of superstition, and that we keep it entire, that is, without taking away as if we didn't care what he had said, the entirety of the thing being received. All such religious worship and ordinances, not just the external ordinances of worship, but the internal attitude of the heart in worship, the inward worship of the mind and the spirit, as well as the external worship of the body, all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word, in the Bible itself, as God has revealed it in the scriptures. So this is the second commandment. Now, The worship, just a brief note on this, the worship that God requires, you find in the Bible, is ecclesiastical, it's personal, it's uh, family, and it's national. So there are different types of worship that God requires of men. In the ecclesiastical sense, we have the regular public ordinances of worship. You see these throughout the New Testament, preaching and hearing of the word, doctrines and exhortations, uh, the reading of scripture, You have the observance of the Lord's table. You have the public prayers of the people of God. You have the singing of psalms. You even have vows occasionally taken to God himself in the face of the congregation. So those are things that happen in public and the ecclesiastical worship. Personal worship, Christ refers to prayer as an ordinance of private worship. You have the reading of scripture. Believers are commanded to meditate on the word of God, to confer with others to think upon it, 
and to practice it in their lives, not just to be hearers, but to be doers of the word. That's the fallout of the application of worship, to hear the word faithfully, to mix it with faith. In other words, when you hear the word preached, not just to let it bounce off your ears. And so then there's family worship, where fathers are commanded to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're commanded to instruct their wives at home. If their wives have any questions, they're to ask their husband at home. Uh, We have all these patterns and examples in the scriptures and in the New Testament commands specifically to fathers for raising them up in the nurture of God's teaching. And then you have national worship, where you see in scripture the magistrate in Romans 13 is referred to not just as a minister of God, but also as a liturgos, which that's the name of a priest. In fact, Paul refers to his office in the church as a liturgos, and then he refers to the magistrates as liturgoi, on God's behalf, leading the people in the worship of God. So you see in the Bible, there'll be days of fasting and prayer called for by the magistrates. That's an act of national worship. You also see with Solomon leading the people of Israel and Judah in the worship of God, You see this in Hezekiah in the books of the kings. Whenever there's a godly king, whenever David has some major victory or when he brings the ark up, you see there's national worship that takes place, that the whole nation gathers together in the worship of God. So it's more occasional and it's more what we would call ad hoc according to the thing that occurs. But there are times when there are special vows or special days of fasting and prayer, special days of celebration of God's providence. Those are national acts of worship. But the regular worship of God happens in private, it happens in families, and it happens in public on the Sabbath day, on the Christian Sabbath, when we are to worship God. The ordinances themselves, the larger catechism gets into it, so I'm not going to touch on it uh, too much. But just to mention, in the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, we see Well, what actually did Christ tell the apostles concerning the public worship of God? And it's not like it's left to our imagination. Christ has not said, well, in the Old Testament, I was very concerned about how I was supposed to be worshipped, but now it's peace, love, and granola, and you don't have to listen to me anymore. No. We still have to listen to King Jesus. We still have to obey his ordinances. We still have to observe, he says, whatsoever I have commanded you. Just like Moses said to Israel, So Jesus says to the true Israel, you must listen to my commandments. It is not a matter of will worship. You can't claim that Jesus is your king and then worship him in superstition according to the traditions of elders. No, you must worship him as he's prescribed for you. Don't add to it. Don't diminish from it. Don't be an atheist who says, well, I don't care. I'm going to take away from your words. Don't be superstitious idolaters and add things to his word. Don't pretend as if you're a god, in other words. All right, so that's our catechism for the second commandment, the duties required. And then, God willing, next week we'll look at the sins that are forbidden us.